Welcome to Topic 8. In this podcast, we're going to be considering the complaints and discipline process. Not a very happy topic, but one that actually is really important to understand. So in this podcast, the key concepts that we're going to be unpacking are as follows. Firstly, we're going to look at the complaints process under the uniform law, uh, particularly how complaints are made, investigated and then prosecuted if necessary. We're going to look at the distinction, and it's really important you understand this, between consumer complaints and disciplinary complaints and those that constitute mixed matters. We're going to then look at the statutory definitions of unsatisfactory professional conduct and professional misconduct. And we're going to consider the Allenson test as the common law test that also helps us interpret these two standards of behaviour. And we'll touch upon the penalties that can result as a consequence of a disciplinary finding, including the impact of civil penalties. As we've seen from previous topics and the cases we have discussed in those topics, unfortunately, there are times when the profession must discipline practitioners. Now, not every complaint results in a disciplinary outcome. That's important to state. And not every complaint about legal services is because a lawyer has done the wrong thing. Quite the contrary. In 2020 to 2021 and the previous year, the Legal Services Commissioner reported that the vast number of complaints that were made to them concerned legal costs uh, or they concerned complaints from family law and de facto property settlements. Now, these were the high proportion of complaints and a lot of these probably could have been avoided if legal practitioners exercised better clearer communication in terms of expectations of legal costs and if they also explain to their clients the nature of the adversarial system, particularly in family law. It doesn't mean that the practitioners did the wrong thing. It's just that they get a lot of complaints in those areas and often it's a functionality of communication. But of last year, of 1,936 complaints made, 1,662 were closed. And for one of the 10 reasons, this would have been under Section 277 of the Legal Profession Uniform Law. So the vast majority of complaints don't resolve in disciplinary outcomes. Only 30 complaints of those last year were actually prosecuted in NCAT or determined under the regulatory authority powers. So what we see in the case law is not necessarily representative of the profession. And that's a good thing because some of the cases, as we've seen, are quite appalling. It's also really important to remember that the overarching principle behind disciplinary determinations um, is that they are prosecuted to protect the public. They are not prosecuted for the sole intention of punishing the legal practitioner or even deterring other practitioners from behaving in that way. Although we have to acknowledge that it does have that effect also. And if you need authority for this, have a look at uh, Justice Mason's judgment in Weaver and Ward or Justice Marnie's judgment in Law Society of New South Wales and Foreman. So let's talk about the disciplinary framework. The beginning place to consider the complaints process is the legislative structure of the uniform law. And I really encourage you to go and have a look at this when you're in front of your computer next. Chapter 5 of the Legal Profession Uniform Law deals with the discipline and complaints process. And that's what we're going to be focusing in on in this podcast and this week's topic. Um, it, in part 5.2, it particularly deals with how complaints are made and disciplinary matters at part 5.4. should also have a read of division three in part 5.4, which uh, details the role and the powers of the designated tribunal. 
Now, it's important to note here that the legal profession uniform law gives certain investigative and determinative powers to what's called local regulatory authorities. Who these authorities are in each jurisdiction will be determined by the application acts of each state or territory. So in New South Wales, for example, the local regulatory authority is referred to as the investigator of all complaints and the determiner of some complaints in section 282 and section 290. Uh, it is said in our application legislation at those sections that the local regulatory authority who deals with complaints under Chapter 5 is the Legal Services Commissioner of New South Wales. Um, in that regard, have a look at Section 11 of the Legal Profession Uniform Law Application Act of New South Wales. To make matters even more complicated, under Section 406 of the Uniform Law, the designated local regulatory authority has power to delegate out its functions for complaints investigation and some prosecutions to other suitable bodies. In New South Wales, the Legal Services Commissioner has done this with instruments of delegation and the Law Society of New South Wales, the Council of the Law Society and the New South Wales Bar Council both have delegated power to investigate and prosecute disciplinary complaints. And so that's the reason why in some case law that we're looking at, you'll see that the Legal Services Commissioner is the prosecuting party, but in other cases, you'll see it could be the Bar Council of New South Wales or the Law Council of New South Wales, um, depending on whether it's a barrister or a solicitor and depending on which body ultimately investigated and then prosecuted. What you need to be satisfied of is that under the legislation, all have the power to act accordingly. So how do disciplinary proceedings begin and how are they prosecuted? Disciplinary proceedings always occur as a result of a complaint being made. Who can make a complaint about a legal practitioner? Well, the answer lies at section 266 of the Act, which tells us that anyone can make a complaint. You don't have to be a client, although it should be noted that the bulk of complaints made are by clients. Having said that, uh, any other party, your opponent in litigation, the Legal Services Commissioner themselves, uh, referral by the court, or simply a member of the public may make a complaint about legal practitioner. There is a limitation period on making complaints. The complaint must be made within three years of the conduct that is complained of. Now, as we touched on in topic one, complaints about lawyers in New South Wales and Victoria must be made in writing, see section 267, to the Legal Services Commissioner. Complaints begin the process of investigation. Now, the investigative process for complaints and how they're dealt with is actually best explained through a chart representation. And I've included this in topic, your online topic eight. Um, so do have a look at that because it's quite a complicated flow chart. But once a complaint has been made, um, the respondent to the complaint, so the legal practitioner, has to be notified of the complaint and give an ample opportunity to respond. And there are time limits in which you must respond on receipt of a complaint, see sections 278, sorry, 279 and 280. Now, on receipt of a complaint, the commissioner will initially investigate the matter themselves. And they do this in order to classify the nature of the complaint. And they'll make a classification that it is either a consumer matter within the definition of section 269 or it's a disciplinary matter as defined at section 270. Now this distinction is important because how a complaint is classified is really important because 
the type of classification means that the range of orders and penalties that can be applied if proven and which body can actually apply the penalties or make the findings depends on the type of complaint. So, for example, a disciplinary complaint that may result in a finding of unsatisfactory professional conduct can be investigated and dealt with by the local regulatory authority. And they can also make findings and orders under the legislation. Whilst a disciplinary matter that involves the more serious charge of professional misconduct must be determined by way of prosecution in the disciplinary tribunal, which in New South Wales is NCAT. So it depends on how the, the complaint is classified as to how it's going to be handled and consumer complaints have their own process requiring informal resolution between the parties such as mediation before the complaint is escalated for determination by the local regulatory authority. Now, some complaints might be what we call mixed matters or mixed complaints. They have aspects of consumer complaints and aspect of disciplinary complaints. Let me give you an example. A solicitor may, for example, have uh, issued a cost agreement that's unclear or doesn't comply. That normally might be a consumer matter or the or they might have uh, overcharged a client. But if the overcharging becomes gross overcharging or dishonest overcharging, that tips it from disciplinary into, sorry, into from consumer into disciplinary. And as a consequence, it could become a mixed matter. Or the complaint might be about something that is a consumer matter, such as uh, costs agreements or legal costs. The solicitor has been uh, fired by the client and the client wants their file transferred to another solicitor. That all could be dealt with under a consumer matter, but if the solicitor has acted in a way to refuse to transfer a file or has done something dishonest, then it might become disciplinary as well. The way in which these mixed complaints is handled is often quite complicated because uh, the local regulatory authority in relation to section 271 is able to hive off aspects of the consumer components of the complaint and to resolve that and make orders. So for example, they may make an order that the file be transferred, but then may deal with the disciplinary aspect in the matter separately. This makes sense because often consumer matters are what hinders the continuation of clients' legal problems, e.g. transferring a file, and that can be dealt with relatively quickly and inexpensively disciplinary matters are much more complicated. So let's talk about disciplinary matters. Disciplinary matters are those complaints that raise the issue of whether the lawyer's conduct complained of may amount to unsatisfactory professional conduct or more seriously, professional misconduct. Now these are defined under sections 296 and 297 respectively of the Act. Please make sure you have a very clear tab on that part of the legislation and a working understanding of each definition. Section 296 provides that unsatisfactory professional conduct includes conduct of a lawyer occurring in connection with the practice of law that falls short of the standard of competence and diligence that a member of the public is entitled to expect of a reasonably competent lawyer. Now, it's interesting, the legislation doesn't define competent and it doesn't define diligence or reasonably competent. It doesn't set the standard of what is and is not competent. So how do we work that out? Well, it's here that the common law applies. The common law establishes what is competent practice and a reasonably objective standard of what the competent or diligent lawyer should or should not do and applies this in terms of the Allenson test as a peer standard. 
it then determines whether the conduct complained of falls short of that test and whether there is unsatisfactory professional conduct. The Legal Services Commissioner gives examples of what types of conduct might amount to unsatisfactory professional misconduct through the following list as typical examples. So things like threatening or abusive behaviour, non-disclosure of legal costs, failure to comply with undertakings, serious delays, uh, minor breaches of the Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules, not appearing, arriving late for court hearings, being rude or aggressive, failing to do work that's expected or within a reasonable time, sending documents to the wrong address, failing to communicate effectively and promptly to clients, consistent failure to reach a reasonable standard of competence and diligence, or not withdrawing from a matter when acting for both parties to a conveyance or a business purchase and a conflict arises. So those sorts of things are given as a non-exhaustive list of examples of the type of behaviour that might amount to that standing, uh, for, sorry, falling short of um, the standard of practice that a reasonable and competent lawyer might do in diligent legal practice. Now, Section 297 of the Act defines the more serious offence of professional misconduct. This is defined as uh, the unsatisfactory professional conduct of a lawyer where the conduct involves, I'm sorry, I've got the wrong definition. Let's try that again. It involves conduct of a lawyer, whether occurring in connection with the practice of law or occurring otherwise than in connection with the practice of law that would, if established, justify a finding that the lawyer is not a fit and proper person to engage in legal practice. And in determining whether or not that lawyer is fit and proper to engage in legal practice, regard may be made to the matters that would be considered if the lawyer were an applicant for admission to the Australian legal profession. So note in the definition of professional misconduct, it sorry, elaborates further on the unsatisfa unsatisfactory professional conduct component in terms of it has to be substantial or consistent failure to maintain a reasonable standard. And it also imports this notion, which we've talked about in the admission of legal practitioners, which is the fit and proper person test again. So it's that conduct that is uh, of both your personal life and your professional life that suggests you do not have the honesty, integrity or capability to act as a fit and proper practitioner. Now, examples of professional misconduct type cases include the following. Uh, again, um, threatening and abusive behaviour, and it would be quite serious in that regard um, and be quite extreme, much more than what was previously given as an example. Um, gross overcharging, conflicts of interest, so serious conflicts, acting contrary to a client's instructions, misleading or dishonest conduct in or out of court, and misappropriation of trust money. Now, again, this is not an exhaustive list in terms of the sort of conduct that amounts to professional misconduct, but it is quite a serious list and gives you an idea of the types of things that will result in a finding of professional misconduct. The case law suggests that frequently it's that element of dishonesty that is the issue in that finding of professional misconduct. And unfortunately, professional dishonesty usually occurs in the context of trust account fraud. Not always, but usually. Now, 
Upon preliminary investigation of a complaint, the Legal Services Commissioner can, pursuant to Section 278 of the Act, recommend that a lawyer's practising certificate be immediately suspended whilst a complaint's being dealt with. Again, this is a protective mechanism designed to protect the public from the practitioner until the complaint is resolved. The idea behind it is not punitive or punishing, um, although it should be acknowledged that it does have a somewhat punitive effect. So this can be used sometimes too in quite sad cases where there's not deliberate uh, ill-doing or intention by the practitioner, but it could be that the practitioner's mental health has deteriorated or they have become so aged that they're no longer able to competently carry out legal services. In addition to this, the Legal Services Commissioner may, pursuant to Section 256, subsection 1, decide to carry out a compliance audit of a legal practice's professional obligations. We most often see this in trust accounting instances, and it can do so only if there are reasonable grounds to do so. After the initial investigation is undertaken, the Commissioner may proceed to a full investigation. Or at this point, they can refer the matter to the Bar Council of New South Wales, usually for barristers' cases, um, or they can refer it to the Law Society of New South Wales or the Council of um, the Law Society of New South Wales, usually for cases of solicitors. Sometimes the Legal Services Commissioner themselves hang on to the matter, but more often than not, under that delegated authority, the matter is sent out to one of those parties to further investigate and, if necessary, prosecute. In cases where the Commissioner is satisfied that the conduct complained of amounts to unsatisfactory professional conduct, the Commissioner may make a range of orders themselves, and those orders are set out in Section 299 of the Uniform Law. These include that the designated local regulatory authority, which is the Commissioner, may, in relation to disciplinary matters, make orders that they caution the practitioner or an associate of the respondent law practice. They can reprimand them, they can require an apology from the legal practitioner, an order requiring the practitioner uh, redo work, for example, um, that is the subject of the complaint or to waive costs and reduce fees. They can require that the lawyer um, have an inspection of their legal practice. They can require that they undertake further training, education or counselling. They can require that they pay fines uh, not exceeding $25,000. They may also make recommendations of the imposition of restrictions on the practitioner's practising certificate. So do have a look at Section 299 and the range of orders that can be dealt with by the Legal Services Commissioner on investigation of a matter themselves. Now, the maximum fine, as I noted, that can be given under this section is $25,000. It's important to note that the Legal Services Commissioner and any of the investigating authorities under delegated authority do not have the power to strike a practitioner off the roll. That remains part of the court's inherent disciplinary power, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. If the matter is considered to be one of the more serious disciplinary matters and it falls not within that definition of unsatisfactory professional conduct but professional misconduct, Section 300, subsection 1, requires the Commissioner to commence proceedings against the practitioner in NCAT if it's New South Wales or VCAT if it's Victoria. And that applies also to whether it's delegated to the Bar Council or the Law Society. These proceedings will be heard in the Occupations Division and they'll proceed under the procedural rules of that respective tribunal. Now, the Commissioner or the rele relevant delegated local authority acts as a prosecutor in the tribunal. 
In the tribunal, the particular rules of procedure and evidence that are applicable to that particular tribunal will be applied. The disciplinary jurisdiction is neither civil nor is it criminal. It's what we call sui generis, which the standard of proof is neither the criminal or civil standard. It's a requirement that the disciplinary charges be proven to a standard of reasonable satisfaction based on the Brigginshaw standard. In this regard, there's some case law to assist you in understanding that at page 212 of your text. As your text notes, the tribunal must determine each disciplinary charge as proven or not proven. Now, when a practitioner is disciplined, often there'll be a number of breaches. So we see particularly in the trust account cases, there can be several trust account breaches that have been brought and often they're breaches in different clients' matters as well. And so each breach will be brought as a disciplinary charge against the practitioner. It's the tribunal's role to hear the evidence of each and every charge, to hear the practitioner who is obligated under the standard of proof to assist the tribunal in its inquiries and to make a finding on whether the charge is proven or not proven. Once this has been done, the penalty for the matter will be dealt with on either a charge by charge basis or alternatively on a cumulative basis so as to deal with the problem holistically, particularly um, this occurs where there is problematic behaviour of general dishonesty. So for example, the striking off the role of a by a, um, the court by a practitioner might be warranted cumulatively because of the behaviour complained of in each of the disciplinary charges. But often you'll see fines levied on a charge by charge basis and then accumulated at the end. It depends and you'll see judgments doing both. But pursuant to section 302 of the Uniform Law, the tribunal can make a very significant range of orders and you should have a look at section 302 as to the orders they have power to make. They include fines, compensation orders, suspension of practising certificates, but the most serious order a tribunal can make is section 302.1f, and that is an order recommending the removal of a practitioner's name from the role of legal practitioners, which is also known as strike-off. Now, this is the same role that your name is entered into when you're admitted to legal practice. The determination to strike a practitioner from the role falls under the uniform law to the admitting body, and that is the Supreme Court. This has always been the case in Victoria, but in New South Wales previously, under the Legal Profession Act, NCAT could actually make a determination to strike you from the role. Now with the uniform law, both jurisdictions uh, work on the Victorian model, which is that you must refer strike off applications to the Supreme Court to determine, and you'll frequently see that those cases are brought by the uh, prothonotary of the Supreme Court. The test of fit and proper person becomes the basis for the court's determination of whether the strike off from the role ought to occur. And it's important to note that removal from the role is done not again with the intent to punish the practitioner because that's what the disciplinary findings do. It's with the intention of protecting the public. So the question is, is this person after the conduct they've now been found convicted of a fit and proper person to continue in the practice of law? By way of interest, consider some of the fines and orders that are made by the tribunals um, in professional misconduct. Now, should a lawyer not be happy with uh, a tribunal's determination, they do have a right of appeal, and that right of appeal is to the New South Wales Supreme Court. Let's now talk about the Allenson test. 
Now, although the uniform law clearly sets the definitions of unsatisfactory professional conduct and professional misconduct at sections 296 and 297, it's important to understand that the common law also has a legal test for professional misconduct. And this is an important test that comes into play also. The uniform law and the Australian solicitor's conduct rules explicitly state that they are non-exhaustive. So have a look at Solicitor Conduct Rule 2.2, which states both the rules and the common law are to be applied in assessing conduct as to being unsatisfactory conduct or professional misconduct. Equally, Section 264 of the Uniform Law states that the common law is also to apply in making these determinations. Thus, the definitions of this conduct at 296 and 297 is non-exhaustive. And there are going to be times when tribunals hearing disciplinary matters will apply common law standards and tests as to what constitutes professional misconduct. The Allenson test was expounded in the 1894 English Court of Appeal judgment of Allenson and the General Council of Medical Education and Registration. In that case, it, they considered uh, whether a doctor in the pursuit of his profession had done something with regard to it which would be reasonably regarded as disgraceful or dishonourable by his professional peers of good repute and competency. This test, that became known as the Allenson test, has been extrapolated and applied in common law in Australia over many, many years to a range of disciplinary cases involving all sorts of professionals, not just lawyers. But it essentially is, at its heart, a peer test. And it's a peer test that considers whether the behaviour the professional person has engaged in is disgraceful or dishonourable by their professional peers. So this begs the question, what sort of conduct constitutes disgraceful or dishonourable conduct? Well, to answer that, we have to turn to case law and to understand what the courts have considered in relation to what conduct is and is not disgraceful and dishonourable. Um, if we were to summarise, I guess, all of the judgments in this area and to try and pull out some guiding principles, the following aspects can be noted. And in this regard, I must acknowledge that this is the work of Gino Del Pont. Professor Del Pont has distilled this in his review of the disciplinary cases. Del Pont says, firstly, it's more than just negligence. Secondly, disgraceful and dishonourable is something that other members of the profession would not engage in. Thirdly, it involves how you behave professionally and personally, and we've talked about this quite a lot. Fourthly, it involves an element of culpability or fault. So professional misconduct is conduct that's more than just negligence, see Myers and Elman. So omissions, you know, mucking things up like missing a limitation period or forgetting to file documents, might very well be negligent or a breach of the contractual retainer, but they wouldn't amount to disgraceful or dishonourable conduct on the Allenson test. Usually it's conduct that other members of the profession don't engage in and won't engage in. So um, that having been said, there is a case of the Law Society of Tasmania and Turner of 2001 that illustrates that just because some members of the profession do engage in it doesn't mean that it's not disgraceful or dishonourable. So it is quite interesting as to that test. But what constitutes disgraceful and dishonourable is not just how you behave at work. That's clear. It can also be concerning your personal life. As we've said before, cheating on personal income tax returns, lying in divorce proceedings would amount to dishonourable uh, conduct and yet they have very little to do with your professional practice.
The Allenson test requires personal fault or culpability by the practitioner. And therefore, collective liability of a legal firm or context would not be something that would meet this test. Um, although if a lawyer is required to supervise and fails to do so, misconduct may still be found. See Nicolaitis and the New South Wales Legal Services Commissioner of 2007. If you comply with the rules of professional conduct of the legal profession, this will usually be a defence to a misconduct at common law claim. And if you can demonstrate that the conduct is not disgraceful or dishonourable, then it doesn't meet the Allenson test. And in this regard, have a look at the case of Chamberlain and the Law Society of the ACT. What's for sure is the Allenson test has been endorsed by Australian courts and is the legal test used by courts when considering conduct that amounts to professional misconduct. As Chris Edmonds notes in his article called Courts and Tribunals Continue to Invoke These Tests in Lawyers' Disciplinary Cases, he says rather than formulating new descriptions of misconduct by reference to the current legislation and the policies underlying it, the test imposes a threshold for misconduct that is different to that justified by the legislation. How the legislation does differ from the Allenson test is that the legislation doesn't require the tribunal to conclude that the that other practitioners who are of good repute and competence would consider the conduct disgraceful and dishonourable. It is only the common law that applies that peer test. Although having said that, when we have that definition in unsatisfactory professional conduct, the idea that it's falling short of the diligence that would be expected by a reasonably competent practitioner, I think necessarily invites a peer test. In the Bar Council of New South Wales and Asuzu of 2011, the court considered what the word substantial means when we talk about substantial failure. The court was of the view that substantial means a failure to meet the requisite standard in a way that is meaningful or relevant to the practitioner's ability to practice law. When considering consistent failure, the court reasoned that this would mean repeated or persistent failure resulting from the same mistakes of principle or acting in the same inappropriate way in a variety of situations. So, it's true, one mistake may have serious legal consequences and implications. In terms of disciplinary matters for unprofessional, uh, sorry, unsatisfactory professional conduct or professional misconduct, usually a consistent and repeated and persistent failure is what will be required. So what are the consequences of disciplinary orders? Well, there are a range of orders the tribunal or the local regulatory authority may make in regards to discipline, and it depends on a number of factors. These include, firstly, the seriousness of the conduct. Secondly, whether it's an isolated incident in terms of um, the complaint or whether this is one of a number of complaints or something a practitioner has done before. And this can ov obviously be important and be the tipping point from unprofessional conduct into professional misconduct because the definition looks at that persistent pattern of behaviour for professional misconduct. So if you have done the same thing in previous matters that have been the subject of a complaint, then that can tip something that normally would be unsatisfactory professional conduct into professional misconduct. The third aspect is the need to protect the public and the fourth aspect is whether there is that element of dishonesty involved. So let's just overview some of the disciplinary measures that can be undertaken in dealing with practitioners. Firstly, strike off. The fundamental determination behind the removal of a lawyer's name from the role of legal practitioners is that they are no longer considered a fit and proper person to practice law. This is motivated, as I've said numerous times, by the desire to protect the public rather than punish the lawyer. 
We usually see strike-off where the lawyer has willfully been dishonest, uh, particularly to the court or fraudulent in an activity outside of the court. So for example, in personal life, like tax returns, etc. Um, with this type of behaviour though, it normally is intentional. Although in some instances, strike-off might have to be levied as a consequence of protecting the public due to no fault of the lawyer at all. So for example, age and mental illness. You should note that strike-off is not automatic, as I said, and does require referral to the admitting body, which is the Supreme Court. Uh, once a practitioner has been struck off from the role, that's not game over. They can actually apply or reapply for admission to legal practice to the role but they have to demonstrate that they are reformed and that they are now a fit and proper person to carry out legal practice. And that requires quite strict evidentiary requirements, very similar to what is required on admission. But in addition to that, with the certificate of compliance, you need to provide uh, affidavit evidence, obviously, that you have changed from your previous strike-off position. Now, the second one, suspension. Suspension of a practising certificate is premised again on public protection, but allows a tribunal to order further training or steps to be undertaken to supervise and correct the practitioner. Suspension often occurs where the practitioner has fallen below the standard of competence and diligence that we would expect, but it's not used when there is dishonest or willful breach. As Professor Dalpont notes, suspension is done to help the practitioner reform and in hope that they will desire to be more meticulous in future, future compliance and to meet the required standards. A practitioner who is suspended may resume their legal practice again once the period of suspension is over. Whilst usually practitioners are suspended for fixed periods of time, sometimes a condition can be placed that they are suspended until they can show the tribunal that they have fulfilled a certain obligation. An example of this was in the judgment of the Victorian Legal Services Commissioner and Mingos of 2016. Therefore, suspension can allow a practitioner the time required to undertake necessary further training or medical treatment whilst serving the dual purpose of protecting the public. Reprimand. Although less than suspension or strike-off, I suppose, in terms of the range of orders, reprimands are still very serious. And Professor Del Pont notes should be seen as far more significant than a slap on the wrist. What we see in these cases is usually that the misconduct is an isolated event or an example of very poor practice, but it's not blatant dishonesty. Reprimands are usually accompanied with fines or requirements of retraining, and that has a sufficiently punitive effect. Um, in some instances, so for example, an aberration in trust accounting where it's not intentional or dishonest, uh, reprimands are issued with orders that uh, supervision be given and retraining occur. An interesting case that brings the thread of what we're talking about together is the case of the Council of Queensland Law Society and Cummings 2004. In that case, a solicitor who had been practicing without any complaints for 33 years admitted that they had made some trust account breaches. Now, the breaches occurred due to the solicitor's inability to accurately keep trust account records. No dishonesty was involved. Whilst this automatically amounts to professional misconduct because trust breaches are very serious, the tribunal found the lack of prior complaints, the lack of dishonesty and disciplinary findings previously, together with the isolated nature of the conduct, warranted a fine and a 12-month suspension. That brings us to the next disciplinary outcome, suspension. Uh, one further aspect that should be noted um, is suspension. So the degree of experience that a practitioner has will be relevant in dis disciplinary matters also and the penalties that are given. 
Lawyers who are in breach because they're junior, inexperienced and not properly supervised will still find there is some form of discipline, but the tribunal or the commissioner is usually likely to be lenient in terms of penalties imposed. In this regard, see Re Fabricus of 1989 and Legal Services Commissioner and WEN, WEN of 2016. Now, obviously, dishonest breaches will be treated differently. That's not a question of supervision or professional experience, but rather a question of fit and proper person. But generally, tribunals see that suspension might be appropriate to allow a younger solicitor or inexperienced practitioner to obtain further training and proper supervision. Uh, Rule 37 requires that solicitors with carriage of the matter, talking about supervision, are to supervise all others who have anything to do with the matter. Now, as we know, a breach of this rule may sound in disciplinary proceedings, but not always. The rules themselves do give no right of private causes of action against a lawyer. They're simply a standard that uh, the profession is to aspire to in its professional conduct. But it's not a basis for a cause of action. See Rule 2.3 and see the case of Dura Australia Constructions and Hugh Boutique Living, 2014 Victorian Supreme Court decisions. Um, the remedy for loss suffered by a client whose matter is fumbled or mucked up due to a lack of supervision of junior staff comes in civil proceedings where you would have an action for breach of contract or negligence, but it does not come from a breach of the solicitor's conduct rules. Consider the recent settlement of the case of Gordon and Antisovnik Hartnell, where a senior associate defrauded a client of millions of dollars to service his gambling debts, all because of a complete lack of supervision. It's also correct to note that there is provisions in the legislation for civil penalty orders to be made under the uniform legislation. Now, although available, these are not often applied. Normally, fines and disciplinary measures are the preferred course. However, in this regard, Barrister Lionel Worth explains the effect of civil penalty provisions quite well. He says that civil penalty provisions are akin to sentencing in criminal offence matters where the prosecuting party and the practitioner may agree to the terms of the penalty, but ultimately it's up to the disciplinary tribunal to accept that penalty is adequate. As uh, Mr Worth notes, there was a judgment of Stirling and Legal Services Commissioner in 2013, the Victorian Court of Appeal where the court actually discussed the relationship um, between discipline and civil penalty orders and said, uh, briefly put, like in sentencing, the final sanction is the product of instinctive synthesis of the relevant circumstances. But the difference is the contravention is proved on the stand civil standard and the purpose of a disciplinary sanction is both punitive of the practitioner and protective of the public. Uh, also too, Commonwealth and the Director of Fair Work Building in Building Industry Inspectorate of 2015, uh, the High Court noted, civil penalty provisions are included as part of a statutory regime involved, involving a specialist industry or activity regulator or a department or minister of state of the Commonwealth with the statutory function of securing compliance with the provision of the regime that have the statutory purpose of protecting or advancing particular aspects of the public interest. Typically, the legislation provides for a range of enforcement mechanisms, including injunctions, compensation orders, disqualification orders and civil penalties. Uh, with or, as in the case of building and construction industry improvement, without criminal offences. That necessitates, necessitates the regulator choosing the enforcement mechanism or mechanisms which the regulator considers to be the most conducive to securing compliance with the regulatory regime. 
So that's a helpful way of understanding certainly how the civil penalty provisions apply. They are punitive, I suppose, in their function, but it is part of that enforcement of a regulatory regime, particularly uh, with the legal, legal profession uniform law and its related provisions. Thank you for listening to this podcast lecture. If you have any questions, please do raise them in the jute.